long text, short prayer. Let's pray together. Father, as we often pray here, but sincerely mean it from our hearts this morning, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. If you're new with us, we've been uh, going through uh, certain portions of the book of Acts, noticing how the gospel is advancing across various uh, geographical and cultural barriers. We started in Jerusalem. We made note of uh, Judea and Samaria. Last week we looked at the conversion of an Ethiopian man. And now we see the gospel advancing into Philippi, uh, northern Greece, uh, advancing into Europe. And we see Jesus establishing his church uh, in Philippi, and we see Jesus' power displayed in various ways. This is a very remarkable chapter in, in a number of ways. Uh, last summer on our trip uh, back home as we had visited our missionaries, uh, the Maritas and Hollises and Sigmunds decided uh, to stay a couple of nights in the modern city of Thessaloniki. And um, we decided on one day to drive to Philippi. It's about an hour and 45-minute drive. And so we rented uh, a cheap Volkswagen uh, van called a Caddy. And uh, Matt Sigmund was our driver, so we called him Matty the Caddy Daddy. And, uh, you know, with his... Um, 80s Spotify music playing, uh, we proceeded to go down, the, uh, go up the, up, up the hills into northern Greece. And I was on the Google map, uh, that sounded really old, on the Google map. I was on the, <laughs> I was on the internet machine, and, uh, <laughs> and I, I was looking for other things that we might see, and I was looking for the other cities, you know, that are mentioned in this text. And I found some pictures of an old Roman road, uh, the Via Ignatia which uh, is not like a tourist destination, but we managed to find it off the beaten trail. And uh, this Roman road goes from Neapolis, which we read, the port city. The port today is called Kavala. The city's Kavala. And Paul would have taken this road uh, with Silas, Timothy, most likely Luke, and walked 10 miles to Philippi. And the first convert in Europe uh, would, would believe Lydia and the first church in Europe would be established. And so we just sat there and thought about the significance of that walk that Paul and his team made. Now the road is kind of dead ends in like a guy's backyard. But um, it was a, just a fascinating spot. Now when Paul arrives in Philippi, and when he uh, 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 ministered in Philippi, he didn't have a nice, pleasant trip with Maddie the Caddy Daddy. Uh, he instead encountered all kinds of conflict, all kinds of opposition. He says to the Thessalonians that he was treated shamefully in Philippi. He says to the Philippians in chapter 1 that you saw the conflict I was engaged in. But it's encouraging that despite the opposition, despite the conflict, Despite the imprisonment, Jesus displayed his power in this city, and he established a new church. It seems that at the end of the chapter, verse 40 indicates that a number of people had become believers over uh, this period of time, which was probably several weeks. But Luke only records for us three stories. The story of Lydia, the story of what Luke calls this uh, slave girl who was very tormented, and then the story of this jailer. And I think his selection of these three individuals is intentional as he's wanting again to drive home the point that the gospel transcends barriers, that, that Jesus can save people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of ethnicities, and establish his church. 
And so let's look at it together. We'll look at it in these three parts. First of all, the journey to Philippi. There's a lot to learn just in that. Secondly, Jesus' power displayed in Philippi. And then thirdly, Jesus establishing his church in Philippi. So first, the journey. If you have a Bible or you want to back up and you're scrolling, you see beginning in chapter 15, verse 36, that um, the companions are kind of being formed. Uh, Paul, before he gets this new vision to Philippi, he gets uh, a new helper. He gets uh, Timothy, uh, beginning of chapter 16. There had been a disagreement with Barnabas. There was a sharp disagreement. And so Paul takes Silas. He then adds Timothy, who that he calls his, his son, his spiritual son. And later in verse 10, the, the we is likely referring to Luke joining the team at that time. And somewhere along the journey, this band, Paul, Silas, Timothy, wanted to go to Asia. They wanted to go west. But it says in the text that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what this means, like what it looked like to be prevented. You know, it's not Gandalf, I don't think, of saying, you shall not pass. But, you know, could this, was this a divine vision? Was this like a lack of peace? Was it transportation difficulty? Was it a sickness? All we know is that they were blocked. They were prevented. And the Lord in his kindness continues to prevent us from doing certain things in a whole host of ways. And sometimes we can be discouraged when we're prevented. Um, but we're, we learn not to be driven to despair when we are perplexed. The, the Lord was still with them even though he was preventing them from going in this direction. So then we read in verse 7, there's another closed door that's mentioned. They travel northward trying to reach Bithynia, that they would have reached cities like Nicaea and Byzantium or modern-day Istanbul. But the Spirit of Jesus didn't let them go there either. And so we see that God is guiding this team. And eventually they, they, they go through the backwoods of Mesia and end up in this coastal town of Troas. And Luke then records this epic calling of this man standing there saying, come to Macedonia, northern Greece, to help us. And Paul sees this vision and he says, we immediately sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, a lot of people have tried to speculate the identity of this Macedonian man. Was it Luke saying, come help us? <laughs> Was it Alexander the Great? No. Uh, but we're not told who this is, but it's somehow, you know, it's, it's kind of related to Cornelius, this divine encounter. God was orchestrating, guiding this team. That's the journey that got them to Philippi. Now, um, it's interesting as you look at this text, you don't want to just make it your last word on trying to discern God's will in your life, but I think there's a lot to learn from this text about how God guides us. Let me just mention four applications that hopefully would be encouraging to you, especially if you're trying to make a decision about something. First of all, God guides us through both closed doors and open doors. Sometimes we, we, we're looking for the open door and we're bothered by the closed door. But notice that they're blocked from Asia and Bithynia, but called to Macedonia. And their story typifies a lot of missionaries when you read missionary biographies. David Livingston wanted to go to China, but ended up in Africa, quite a ways away. William Carey wanted to go to Polynesia in the South Sea Islands, but ended up in India. Judson went to India first, but ended up in Burma. So God does both preventing and permitting. He opens up doors, he closes doors. 
Secondly, God's guidance isn't just circumstantial, it's also rational. That is what we, we need to think over matters. It's not about guessing or looking for God to spell things out in, in our Cheerios, but there's actually godly wisdom that we see in this text. Notice verse 10, the verb conclude. They concluded something. That was them putting the pieces together, gathering information and making a decision. Thirdly, you notice how God's guidance in this text is personal as well as communal. The we, the them, and the us are highlighted here, reminding us that we need to also receive counsel when making decisions. But this is my favorite one. God's guidance is often gradual and unpredictable. What's fascinating about this story is that it does not follow a neatly ordered uh, route. It would have been a whole lot easier just to say, hey guys, come, go to, your next stop is Macedonia. What are you fooling around trying to go up into Bithynia and uh, Byzantine and so on? And this is off, often how it goes. We don't know what, we're, like we just feel like we're bouncing around or wasting time. What's God doing? I love the movie Open Range. It has a number of great one-liners. And it's uh, Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall. And um, they're about to go into this big uh, shootout at the end of the movie. And Charlie, who is Costner, uh, explains his strategy. He says a big elaborate strategy for how they're going to take the bad guys. And Robert Duvall says, sounds like you got it all worked out. And he says, yeah, except the part where we don't get killed. And in, in Duvall's sarcasm and in Costner's response, they both recognize there's an unpredictable aspect of this. We don't know how it's all going to work out. And that is the story of every single church planter I know. You've got strategies and plans, and then you get out there, and you end up in Troas. And God somehow gets you to Macedonia. So be encouraged if you feel like you're perplexed right now. Here's another good text for you when you think about this. Exodus 13, verse 17. When Israel is led out of Egypt, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. He didn't take them the most direct route to the promised land. It would have only taken them two weeks, and instead it took them 40 years. And that's because God is always doing more than getting you from point A to point B. You see, God's ways is not like your app, ways. His ways is different than ways. Where you dial up ways, and you're like, what's the quickest way I can get there? And God has often taken us through a wilderness because he often leads us gradually and unpredictably. The good news is he's with us. And as long as he's with us, I'm okay being perplexed at times, aren't you? Don't get discouraged along the way. Whether you're in a season of wandering and perplexity or in a season of certainty and fulfillment, God is with us. He never left this team, even though they were trying to figure out where they were going to go, but he was with them. Psalm 73, 23 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. He guides us. He counsels us. He holds us. He will one day receive us. In whatever season we're in, we can take that to heart. So that's the journey to Philippi. Now notice these three stories, Jesus' power displayed in Philippi. It says they went from Troas to uh, Samothrace, which was an island between there and uh, Neapolis. And they get to Philippi, which was this little Rome, as people called it, 
and they remained there for some days. And as I said, uh, Luke only records the stories of three individuals. You have a wealthy lady named Lydia, you have this uh, tormented lady, and you have a jailer. And it's interesting if you think about the different backgrounds of these individuals, how uh, it shows us how Jesus is able to save people from all sorts of places. So I have a chart for you there that you can see uh, uh, what, what I mean by this. Lydia was an Asian. She's from Thyatira. She was wealthy. She was a seller of purple, a business lady, an entrepreneur. She was a God-fearer, meant that, that, that she, she wasn't a Christian yet, uh, but she had uh, come to believe in, in uh, the, the Jewish God. And she was brought to faith through public exposition, right? And um, then you have this slave girl who is a native Greek who is very poor and is spiritually tormented. And she's brought to faith through this really powerful encounter uh, in, in, as Paul uh, tells this demon to come out of her. And then the jailer is a Roman. He's more blue-collar. He's more practical guy. And he witnesses persecution, a miracle, and just powerful witness. And Jesus brings these people together as the beginnings of this church in Philippi. So think about uh, this lady, Lydia, for just a second. There's no synagogue in, uh, in Philippi, so when that would be the case, Paul would usually go to the synagogue. There would often be meeting outside of the city, and you can still uh, visit that river today um, where Lydia was likely baptized and where they're meeting here uh, for this kind of Bible study, this place of prayer. And we know a number of things there about Lydia, where she's from, uh, that she's a seller of purple goods. Thyatira was the center for purple dye. I, I assume that she is a widow, uh, because in the first century, uh, you would not be traveling around city to city in business if you had children uh, at home. Uh, she is an entrepreneur, uh, very successful, and yet she's still missing something. And so Paul goes down there, and Luke records these beautiful words. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God opens up her spiritual eyes to embrace Jesus as Lord. So quietly, but still so powerfully, here is the first convert on European soil, a wealthy lady, likely a widow, coming to faith as Paul opens up the gospel and explains it to her. You have to really admire the quietness of this world-changing event. Like this would not have looked impressive if you walked by and saw a handful of ladies and this beaten-up Jewish guy opening up the Bible and, and explaining it, heralding the gospel. It might have looked more like a picnic, a picnic with some prayers. But then something powerful happens in the heart of Lydia, the Lord opens her heart like a flower opens to the sunlight, and she believes. Now, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, and I would just encourage you to, to read the Gospels, to lean in and listen to sermons, to understand that Jesus brings people to faith in the same way today, right? I, I was in Turkey a couple months ago or whenever I went, and I remember talking to this guy who had become a Christian and was now in ministry, and I always want to know over there, especially, like, how did you become a Christian? Because there aren't many Christians. And I'm expecting an, ama an amazing story. And he simply said, I read the Gospels when I was in college and believed. I was like, that's it? You just read the Gospels and believed? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> like, that still happens, doesn't it? Why? Because God does something in our hearts to regenerate us, to bring us to life.
as we read his word, as we hear his word. And if you are a Christian, remember the Lord still does this converting work. He still uses simple exposition of his word to bring people to faith. So believe, maybe your Lydia is waiting. Waiting on your witness as you open up God's word. Well, verse 15 goes on to describe what happens after her conversion. It says that she was baptized as well as her household. And then she invites the missionaries to uh, enjoy her hospitality. So Lydia likely shares her faith with her, uh, with her household, I think meaning her servants. And then she shares her home with the missionaries. And this became, it seems, the first gathering place for the church is the home of this lady Lydia. She's known for generosity and hospitality. Later in uh, Philippians 4, verses 10 and following, Paul notes the generosity of the Philippian church. And you can imagine Lydia being a leader of that generosity and hospitality. So we have a story then of Lydia. Secondly, we have the story of this, as Luke calls her, this slave girl. Very tormented, and as they go to the place of prayer, they're met by this uh, girl that has the spirit of divination, ESV says, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Spirit of divination, it literally reads the spirit of Python. According to mythology, the python guarded the temple of Apollo, and later the word python came to mean a demon-possessed person through whom the python spoke. Luke uh, and Paul obviously understand her to be demon-possessed, and so this pythoness, as some call her, made clairvoyant predictions and uttered words in all sorts of strange voices. And because the locals considered these fortune tellers to be inspired by Apollo, they sought after the python to tell them about their future. And so Luke tells us there was a lot of gain, a lot of financial gain in this business. But the, the point is this girl is in double bondage. She's first of all owned by these profiteers, treated like property, and she's also in bondage to this demonic spirit. And she's following along the missionary saying, these men are servants of the Most High God whom you proclaim as to the, the way of salvation. And at first glance, you're like, well, that's good, isn't it? Well, you don't want your main witness at that time to be a demon-possessed person. It seems that, that Satan is, is trying to associate Paul with the occult. And for many days, she uttered things that were true, but the missionaries weren't happy with it. And that's Noted in verse 18, as it says that Paul was greatly annoyed. <laughs> That's our life verse, isn't it? <laughs> Even Paul was greatly annoyed at times. And Luke says, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Jesus crushes the python. With his power, the power of Christ is displayed in this deliverance. And if we can take her story to be similar to the Gathering demoniac, she then becomes a faithful missionary. Remember the story of the Gathering demoniac in Mark 5. After Jesus delivers this man, it says he was then clothed and in his right mind. An amazing little, little statement. And now this lady has a new owner, the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So see the difference in these two stories. L Lydia's wealthy, the girl is poor. Lydia comes by faith in a, in a small Bible study. The slave girl is transformed in a dramatic way. 
Lydia is a person of high standing. The slave girl was exploited. Lydia was religious. This girl was broken and tormented. Lydia was presented with Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the long-awaited one. The slave girl meets Jesus as the mighty deliverer. Two different ladies brought to faith and now sisters. That's vintage Jesus. That's the stuff Jesus does right there. So let's believe today that the gospel can transform people from all sorts of backgrounds in mighty ways. Thirdly, we see the story of the jailer, a very popular story. After um, this lady is delivered, something happens, which is seen in various places in Acts. As the gospel breaks through in cities, the economy is upset. And the economy is disrupted because, well, these owners were about to lose a whole lot of money now. And so the owners of this girl trump up these false charges against Paul and Silas, claiming that they were disrupting the city and advocating lawful, unlawful customs. And then the crowd joins in in attacking them. And then Luke tells us in verses 23 and 24 that they inflicted many blows on them and put them in prison. This might have been the first of the three floggings that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 11. And the jailer then has this responsibility to keep these prisoners as secure as possible. He adds to their punishment by putting their feet in stocks and puts them in what we would call today a dungeon. So you imagine this. They bounced around Turkey. They end up in Macedonia. Lydia becomes a believer. They encounter this young tormented girl. She is delivered. They've been faithful to the mission. And what happens? They get beat up. <laughs> they get put in prison. What would you do in this moment? Verse 25 is amazing, isn't it? These wounded missionaries, fastened in stocks, soaked in blood. It says, at midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining to God. Paul and Silas were saying, where are you? Paul and Silas were praying, which, which you can get, and singing hymns to God singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. It's his joy in the midst of suffering. This is a powerful witness, isn't it? I would have loved to be there. I wouldn't actually want to be in prison, but I would like to have seen this. Like, how did all this go down? Did, did Paul just start singing songs? Did he kind of start talking to Silas? Like, hey man, what do you want to do? How, how about we sing some songs? You know, like, Paul, you don't have a good voice. Um, well, I'm going to go for it. Join, join in. We've got a listening audience. We have a captive audience that they, they cannot go anywhere at this moment. And as they sing and the prisoners are listening, God shakes the earth. Suddenly there's this earthquake. We imagine them fastened to the wall, a lot of scholars have said. And as the earthquake came, they would have broken free. The bars flow open, fling open, whatever the word is. And then the jailers see this. He's worried about his own life. He knows what will happen if these prisoners all go free. He's going to die. So his first reaction is, I'm going to commit suicide. And Paul and Silas, their first reaction isn't to run out of the jail. In fact, it looks like even the prisoners didn't leave. Because they say, don't harm yourself. We're all here. No, don't fall on your sword. And then once the jailer calls for the lights and rushes in, he falls before the missionaries with this question, what must I do to be saved? 
This is not, I, I think, like a question of how can I be saved from the Roman officials. I'm going to get in trouble now. But based on what Paul and Silas say next, this is a question about real salvation. Whatever you guys got, that's what I want. That's essentially what this jailer is saying. And this is a softball, isn't it? Don't you wish someone would ask you that this week? You're just walking around the store. Hey, excuse me. What must I do to be saved? My friend Philip Moore, speaking of a softball question, he was, he's a, a pastor in Paris. And uh, he was invited to speak at a big university, um, which is very rare in a very secular city. And so they asked him to speak on Christianity and ecology. And he is not an expert on ecology, but was like, this is an opportunity, I'm going to do it. So he's trying to be very gentle and very gracious and very warm as he's talking about this topic in this major university. And he, he just said the word or phrase good news one time. And he said the professor interrupted him and said, excuse me, you just said good news? Like, what is the good news? <laughs> That's kind of the same kind of deal, isn't it? Like, what, what's the good news? And so Philip used a, sake, a, sake, a soccer term that I didn't really understand, but for us, we would say, as Doug said last week, an alley-oop or a, or, a, or a softball. It's the kind of question we want. Now, how would you answer the question? Notice what Paul says. It's so clear, isn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you're not a Christian, just hear that. Maybe you're thinking about doing a gazillion different things. Because you love the clarity of this. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This, this reflects the early church's confession that Jesus is Lord. And this is extended to his whole household. If they too will believe on the Lord Jesus, they too will be saved. This is not, Philip, if you believe your house will also, they can be saved on the basis of your faith, but this invitation is extended to everyone in your house. And this is what we keep telling everyone today, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It says down in verse 32 that they go on then to explain the word to Philip and to those in the house. Saying to those in the house the exact same thing that they said to Philip. Believe in the gospel. And today it's popular in our culture to hear stuff like just believe in yourself, believe in belief. No, I cannot save myself. I cannot raise myself from the dead, but the Lord Jesus can. Amen. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Notice the evidence of change in this man's life, verses 33 and 4. Immediately he begins to wash their wounds. Isn't that a wonderful picture of reconciliation. These guys were lacerated, sticky with blood. The first act of this jailer after his heart has changed is to wash their wounds. And then he's baptized and his family, who presumably believed as well. And then he shows them hospitality. He set food before them and they rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Maybe they took up the same songs that Paul and Silas were singing in prison in the Paul and Silas hymn collection. They're rejoicing together. And so, added to the number of believers now in Philippi is this blue-collar Roman jailer, jolted by a miracle, moved by the faithfulness of Paul and Silas, and converted through their witness. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. Luke is also showing us the, the unifying power of the gospel. 
And that's where I'll leave us with now in verses 35 to 40, as Jesus establishes his church in Philippi. There's some legal proceedings that take place as they want to just let Paul and Silas go in verse 35, and the jailer in verse 36 reports this to Paul, but Paul objects, saying that we haven't been treated justly, we're Roman citizens, and you just want to kind of let us go secretly, and they say, no, let them come and take us out. Now, why does Paul respond like this? Well, I think Paul wants to ensure the safety of the church that he leaves behind in Philippi. Right? By showing that he and Silas had done nothing wrong and that Christianity was no threat to the Roman way of life, Paul is trying to help the church's relationship with the Roman authorities. He doesn't want to fly in and fly out and, and everybody think, well, these are all troublemakers. He wants to make sure that the church had a good reputation among the authorities and that the church would not be harassed in the future. And so it says in verse 39, so they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so we see that the church in, uh, here is, is left with this, um, this, this uh, story of, of Paul and this story of, uh, of justice, if you will, that would again uh, leave them in, in safe, on safe footing as Paul and Silas leaves. And then Luke adds this final wonderful note so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, notice plural, a number of believers, brothers and sisters, they encouraged them and departed. Before this journey to Philippi, there were no Christians. There was no church. There were no brothers and sisters. But now, because of the power of Jesus, there were several members of this new family and thus the first church is established on European soil. They used to call Philippi Little Rome, a little colony of Rome. And now there was a little colony of the kingdom of God called the church, planted in Europe, a beachhead for the rest of Europe, all by the power of Jesus. And later Paul would write to this church, about 10 years later, the book of Philippians. And he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I like to imagine, though we have no idea of knowing, that one of these individuals read the letter to the Philippian church, to the church. Maybe this transformed slave girl read it. Maybe Lydia read it. Maybe this little jailer read it. I don't know if he was little, but maybe he read it. What is certain is that God began a, good, a new work a good work. He's still doing this work, still saving individuals from all sorts of backgrounds. And what a privilege it is for us to be able to hear the gospel and receive it and be transformed by it and to be brought into community with other brothers and sisters. So from chapter 16 here, let's seek God's guidance. Let's trust in his power as we bear witness. And let's rejoice in the privilege of being part of his people, a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. What an encouraging chapter this is as we think about your, the, the transforming power of the gospel and the unifying power of the gospel. We pray that you would give us even greater confidence as we bear witness to Jesus. Give us greater joy as we think about how you've brought us all together and about how we're all going to, to, uh, to, to be together with, with that redeemed from 
uh, all around the globe. We give you praise today uh, for your matchless grace. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.